Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So many of you know these past two weeks, uh, we've been really having a lot of fun uh, recovering from celebrating a wedding. Uh, of our oldest son to an amazing, amazing, beautiful, wonderful person. It's, it's been, again, I've, I've said it before, I'll probably say it again, it's been one of the most joyful, beautiful times in my life to watch my son fall in love and marry someone so amazing. I do have to say, though, I, I, I didn't think I would have as hard of a time as I did uh, doing the ceremony. Uh, I was kind of a hot, good mess emotionally. <laughs> During that time, most of you uh, know me, and you probably know that I don't really strike you probably as a touchy-feely kind of guy. Anybody think I'm that? You really don't know me if you probably t- strike you that way, right? There were actually a number of bets out there that uh, of how long it would take me to fall apart and cry. I was convinced it would be five minutes. Uh, Greg in our sound booth here, he said it would be 30 seconds, and I don't even think I made it to 30 seconds before I started blubbering all over the place. Uh, yeah, we continued to have a good time, uh, even after Derek and Kara left for a honeymoon. It was, it was a great to be able to have some of our family in town that we hadn't been able to spend time together in mass for a while. And in the midst of that beauty, there was also just a, a little bit of bittersweet mixed in. This is actually the first big family event, a wedding on Wendy's side of the family since the loss of her dad. And her dad would have loved being a part of the wedding. He was the kind of guy who loved being with family and having a party was just kind of, kind of his thing. And Wendy's mom was here and we were talking about that and after the wedding was over and how our lives continue without him. But it's, it's a little bit hard at times. It's a difficult season, I think, especially for her right now. And it's, it's not the ending to her story of life that she had hoped for. We were talking about that, and Wendy's brother brought up this profound quote from the writer and actor Orson Welles that says, If you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. And it made us all pause and think in the midst of that. Where are we in our story? Although we may not always be aware of it, we are natural storytellers, every single one of us. It's how we organize our internal worlds. It's how we interpret life and predict how things are going to go based upon the story we think and we believe that we are living. This quote is so powerful because every story is made up of different parts, different acts, different movements. Wendy's mom's story didn't stop with the loss of her spouse, even though moving forward can be hard in the face of that at times. Where any story starts and where it stops is up to the writer. I mean, think about it. Think about your favorite story. What, what, if, what if the movie Titanic stopped before the iceberg smash? It would have been a happily ever after movie at best, probably never even made because it would have probably been a non-event in history, in a sense. What if the Marvel movies stopped the series at the dust scene and didn't do the final movie? That would have been tragic, right? Life has its ups and downs. So what part of your story, what act of your story are you in? What part of the story is our world in right now? It can be a tragedy or it can be a happy ending, depend upon where we stop the story. 
So as we continue our One Big Story series, one of our major goals for the series was to see how we are part of God's big story and how God is actually inviting every single human alive to be a part of his story that he's writing. Our story where he is the writer and he's the one who's directing the ending and understanding that one truth alone can actually change everything for us. Today we are moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Our desire is to help each one of us see more clearly the picture of God's big story so that we can more confidently, no matter what act we are in, in our own story currently, that we can learn to trust God, the master writer of our story, who is incredibly capable of handling both the minute details of the individual's as well as the big overarching story of history, so as to make the entire story move towards an ending that ends really well. So as we move from Old Testament to New Testament, it's also important, I think, that we address a dangerous, inaccurate view of the Bible that far too many American Christians actually hold. It's the idea that when Jesus came to earth and completed his work on earth, the Old Testament became, well, irrelevant. Interesting, but not really needed. The idea is often stated this way, that the New Testament did away with the Old Testament. I I hope that you've seen, as we've been going through the Old Testament, what a terribly bogus, bad idea that really is. The New Testament didn't do away with the Old Testament. It fulfilled it. The story didn't end. The New Testament actually doesn't make as much sense, doesn't show the amount of power and beauty if you don't understand the Old Testament. I want to take a few moments that we have together today to highlight again how awesome, how amazing, how impossible it would be for the Bible to be so beautifully put together, so coherent, if it were just a book written by humans No, it has to be a book that is truly inspired by God as a faithful revelation of God. It is truly Holy Scripture. One thing that's actually fascinating in the Old Testament is how it ends. I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible don't have the exact same order of books and how they end the book. They end it a little bit differently. In the Jewish uh, Bible, it ends with the book of Chronicles. In the Christian Old Testament, it ends with the book of Malachi. Either ending is extremely beautiful and purposeful. Chronicles ends the Jewish Bible with this highly structured review of history, of the kings, of the exile of Israel, and then ends with the return of Israel from the exile. And over and over again in that Chronicles text, we see it say things, it's, a, it's very structured. It says, this king came to power, and they did what was right, or if they didn't, they did what was evil and wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And then it adds some details, and then it basically says that king died and he either having faithfully followed God or having led the people into greater and greater wickedness. The overarching point of Chronicles is to paint this picture of both the good kings as a foreshadowing or a glimpse of the glory and goodness of the coming Messiah, which has been prophesied and promised by all the prophets, or to show through the bad kings the desperate need that we as humanity have for that coming Messiah King to come and save humanity. It's fascinating. 
The Hebrew words that end Chronicles read in English as a full sentence, but in Hebrew it's not. In Hebrew, it ends intentionally with an incomplete sentence. And throughout the ages, the general understanding of that incomplete sentence in the Old Testament that it, that it left off with is that it left off with this yet-to-be-completed vision, this yet-to-be-realized hope, this need for more of God, this hope of a coming Messiah. And also, ending the Jewish Bible with Chronicles sends this loud and clear message that God is orchestrating history, even in the face of humanity's rebellion. It is intended to leave us not just seeing life and God through what's happening today, but rather to help us live with a clear perspective of seeing life through the long view of God and history, and thereby give us confidence that God is faithfully at work leading all of creation to the revealing of the saving work of the Messiah. I think Galatians 4 actually captures the intent of the Jewish Bible leaving off at this place best when it says, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, in the perfect moment in history, in his story, God sent forth his son. Now in the Christian Bible, the final book is Malachi. And what Malachi clearly shows us is that the exile did not change the hearts of the people. They still don't truly trust God. They want God to be their protector. They want God to be their sugar daddy and give them all sorts of nice things, but not their Lord, not the one they worship with their whole heart. Much of the book is a, is a bit gloomy. Chapter 3, you see this glimpse of the, the coming Messiah as it talks about John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. And then in chapter 4, the last chapter, it both holds this sense of hope, but also this sense of judgment surrounding the coming day of the Lord, as the term it uses, prophesying the Messiah's coming and saying in Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings." And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I grew up working on a dairy farm. That is a lot of fun to watch. A calf leaping is just hilarious fun. So whether in the Jewish or the Christian order of the books, the Old Testament leaves off feeling unfinished, looking for the coming Messiah, the centerpiece of human history, the ultimate revelation of God still yet to come. Both leave us with the sense that that is probably going to be some time before that Messiah breaks on the scene. Now, again, when we started this one big story series earlier this year, we had two main purposes in mind. The first purpose is that studies consistently show there is severe biblical illiteracy among Americans, even among those who attend church on a weekly basis. So, we want to help solve that by going cover to cover in the Bible so that we better understand it and more accurately understand how the whole story ties together and works. The second part uh, is that the, the, the thing we wanted is, is caught in the series. This one big story title was chosen for a very specific reason. There is one big story being told throughout the entire Old Testament 
and New Testament. And many of the problems we have with the text, interpreting the text and misunderstandings we have, come from not realizing the perspective of that one big story. So today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to show you, uh, it's about an eight-minute video done by the Bible Project that, that goes into how the t- Old Testament and New Testament tie together, showing us this one big story. So turn your attention to the screens. The New Testament. If you open up a Bible to its table of contents, you'll see it's made up of two large collections, the Old and New Testaments. The word testament refers to a covenant partnership, which is what both of these collections are all about. They tell one epic and complicated story of God's covenant partnership with Israel and all humanity. The Old Testament is called Tanakh in Jewish tradition. It's a unified scroll collection of 39 Israelite texts that were over a thousand years in the making. In contrast, the 27 books of the New Testament all came into existence within 30 to 40 years of each other. They were all written by first-generation followers of Jesus. From an early period, Christian communities began collecting these texts and reading them alongside the Old Testament as one unified story that leads to Jesus. The New Testament begins with four narrative books that together are called the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection as an announcement of good news. They're followed by a fifth narrative work called the Acts of the Apostles. Here, the risen Jesus commissions the apostles, a word that means the sent ones. They're appointed as Jesus' representatives to spread the good news about him throughout the ancient world. After Acts comes a collection of letters from the apostles. These were written to provide teaching and guidance for local communities of Jesus' followers called churches. There are 13 letters connected to the Apostle Paul, and they're not arranged in the order of when they were written, but rather from the longest to the shortest. Then there's the letter to the Hebrews, written by a close but unnamed associate of the Apostles. After this are the letters of James, Jude, Peter, and John. Two were brothers of Jesus, and two were among his first followers. The last New Testament book is the Revelation, a letter to seven churches that reveals a prophetic word of challenge and comfort to all of Jesus' followers. So those are the books of the New Testament, but what are they about? And how do they connect with the Old Testament to make up one unified story? Think of it this way. The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. The core themes and the plot conflict are arranged in design patterns. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish, and they give in to a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression, leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land, Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely these are the new humans that we're waiting for. But the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile in Babylon. 
But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world. Now, notice how these two acts are designed according to the same pattern. The second act is a longer and more violent version of the first, and together they explore the tragic human condition, but they also highlight God's promise, which is developed more in the next act, the Old Testament prophets and poets. The prophets accused Israel and all nations of their evil, and they announced that one day God himself would arrive to bring the day of the Lord and deliver his world from Babylon. He would do it through a promised royal priest, who's going to suffer like a slave and die for the sins of Israel and all humanity, but then he'll be exalted as king over the nations. He will call others to leave Babylon and join the new covenant people, who will partner with God to rule over a new Jerusalem, that is, over a new creation. And so the Old Testament concludes by anticipating a new act in the story. And when you turn to the New Testament, it's the same story, now being carried forward in Jesus. Let's see how. The four gospel accounts introduce Jesus of Nazareth, both as the promised son of Abraham who will restore God's blessing to the nations, and also as that new human who will defeat evil and restore humanity to partnership with God. So Jesus is portrayed as a human and more. He went about announcing the arrival of God's promised kingdom, and he spoke and acted as if he was Israel's divine king. But instead of calling himself king, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, that is, the human one who would act like a servant. The Gospels are making the claim that in Jesus, Israel's God has become the faithful Israelite and the true human that we are all made to be but have failed to be. Jesus' mission was to confront that dark evil that lurks underneath humanity's evil, luring us into selfishness, violence, and death. How do you defeat that kind of evil? The surprising answer in the Gospels is that Jesus overcame our evil by allowing it to kill him on his paradoxical throne, the cross, where Jesus died for humanity's evil and sin. And it's where he lived out what he taught, that nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love are the most powerful things in the universe. And because God's love for his world is stronger than evil or death, Jesus was raised to new life as the prototype of a new humanity. And this brings us to the story of Acts. Through the Spirit, God empowers Jesus' followers to spread the life and love of Jesus out into the world as they invite people to leave their old humanity and join Jesus' multi-ethnic family, the new humanity. This is where the letters from the apostles fit into the story. Here the apostles address early Christian communities, and they show how the good news about the risen King Jesus changed history and should reshape every part of our lives. They also explained the good news by constantly appealing to stories from the Old Testament and the story of Jesus, showing us how to see our own life stories as part of the epic biblical story. So all humanity is trapped in a Babylonian exile, but Jesus came to create a new home. We're all living in different kinds of Egyptian slavery to selfishness and sin, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb to liberate us into the promised land. Our old humanity is bound for the dust of death, but Jesus' resurrection opened up a new future for a new humanity. We live here in the current evil age, but through Jesus and the Spirit, a new creation has burst open here and now. And this leads us to the book of Revelation, where the whole biblical story comes together in powerful symbolism and imagery. 
Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered, bloody lamb who is exalted as the divine king of the world. He's leading his people out of slavery and exile in Babylon. And as they resist Babylon's influence, they may have to suffer alongside their slain leader. But when you follow the risen king, not even death can prevent the dawn of the new creation, which is here depicted as a new Jerusalem garden temple, the true home of humanity after its long exile. And so on the Bible's last page, heaven and earth are reunited, and the new humans take up their appointed task from the Bible's first page to rule the world together in the love and power of God. The New Testament is a remarkable collection of documents. They represent the testimony of the apostles that points us to the risen Jesus himself. And through God's Spirit, these human words have been speaking a divine word of hope from the first century to the 21st. Each book shows how God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is leading our world to its ultimate goal in a renewed creation. And so the story's end is really the beginning of a new story that is yet to be told. And that's what the New Testament is all about. Wow. I don't know about you, but that blows me away. Allow me to highlight just a few big takeaways from that. For those of you who like to say you are scientific and logical, the powerful coherence of the Bible is impossible but for God inspiring it. Hundreds of authors writing in three different languages across 1,500 years, living in very different cultural contexts, contributed to the text of the Bible. When you understand the one big story of all these authors, some who are highly educated and others who were not so much highly educated, they're more common folk, and yet it is so amazingly coherent throughout in developing a clear theme of who God is, the problem of sin, and the brokenness of our world that we all face as humans. Now I know some of you have been told and believe that the Bible is full of errors and uh, not to be trusted because it's not what was originally written, what we have today. You've heard those statements from people with PhDs in fields like the sciences, chemistry, and other fields. The, prom- the problem with those statements is they go against every single grain of science. They are statements that contradict a mountain of evidence that has been carefully scrutinized by the best historical, scientific, and forensic methods. So much so that atheists who are actually true experts in the study of this field in particular have flat out said that the Bible we have today is the Bible that was originally written. It is the most accurate, well-preserved, ancient historical document ever. Nothing is even close to it. Believing the Bible isn't accurate is actually the same as getting caught in the idea that you believe your gifted car mechanic's diagnosis and solution for your cancer instead of your cancer doc's diagnosis and solution. I was actually reading the news a few weeks ago, and you know how at the bottom of the page on the, on the Internet they have all those little you know, articles you can go find out about celebrities or whatever, all those things. Well, there was one down there that had this really catchy title that I saw that essentially said, we can't trust that we even know the real Jesus because of all the inaccuracies in the Bible. Obviously, I don't remember the catchy title because that's the best I can explain it. It was published in one of the most famous New York publications. The author wrote several times in the article saying, of course everyone knows the Bible is full of errors. The only examples he gave, though, 
to prove his point, were a, a smattering of isolated misprints. Uh, one of them, was, one of them, uh, several of them were like this, but one of them in particular said, "Well, you know, in the 1500s, uh, one guy on a printing press got a couple of uh, letters switched around by accident, as if a couple." errors, copying errors, amounted in a few Bibles in just a one line or a portion of the text printed by mistake caused the entire hundreds and thousands of texts passed down over the years to be corrupted for the entire world. I mean, the article would have gotten an F in any college class in history or logic. It was that bad. When someone says to you the Bible is so full of errors, ask them, Which verses? What changed? And how do you know it was changed? In most instances, even really smart people are simply regurgitating what they've heard other people say. And and in some instances, very few, but in some, actually using it as a way to brush aside the Bible so they don't have to seriously consider it. What we see in the Bible is we see a consistent core morality presented. The arguments we see against God's moral standards today, whether it's, it's honesty or love or no gossiping or how we handle money or sexuality, they're no different than what they were in the Bible. There's nothing new. There's no new enlightenment. You can find every single argument today in the Bible. The arguments are the same. And the consequences of sin that sin brings into our lives today are the same as they were. Discovering goodness, discovering life, true love can only be found in living according with our Creator's moral commands and worshiping God and only God more than anything else in our, in our life. Another point that we can draw from this. We see prophecies given and prophecies fulfilled. Days, months, years, maybe centuries even later, Many of these prophetic fulfillments are corroborated in secular historical documents and archaeological finds. We can look back to the dreams of Abraham, Joseph, prophecies of the people of Israel going into slavery for 400 years in Egypt and then coming out. And we see those fulfilled in the text and numerous prophecies fulfilled throughout the age of the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, There was one fascinating example I ran ran into of Daniel's prophetic vision of the kingdoms rising and falling. And Daniel, he talks about four, four, maybe five, I can't remember, kingdoms that will rise and fall. And it's really profound vision. Well, there's a guy named Josephus, one of the universally recognized great Jewish and Roman historians of all time, lived in the first century A.D. Josephus recounts a story passed down that took place when Alexander the Great was conquering the Middle East. A delegation of Jewish leaders, he says, went to meet Alexander uh, before he came to Jerusalem, hoping to make peace so Jerusalem wouldn't be destroyed. They were led by a very, very old man at the time, Jadua, who, by the way, is mentioned in Nehemiah. At the time of Nehemiah, he would have been a very, very young man. Jadua brought with him the book of Daniel to meet with Alexander the Great. Upon meeting Alexander, Jadua pointed out to him how he, Alexander, was the fulfillment of a part of the prophecy of these kingdoms in the book of Daniel. And according to what was passed down, Josephus notes that the prophecy of Daniel greatly affected Alexander's sense of destiny and his decisions as he went on to conquer most of the known world during that time. Here's another point. The one big story is centered in Jesus, the ultimate end of history. The entire Bible, old and new, 
Each book points us to, or in the case of the New Testament, shows us how God through Jesus and the Spirit is leading our world to the ultimate goal of a renewed creation. In the Old Testament, we see God's long-suffering patience over generations and generations of Him doing great kindnesses and being responded to with such unbelief and rebellion for centuries. And yet that same God continually points to a promise that He will make salvation possible. That God would come as a human Messiah to pay our penalty for our sin, to change our hearts, and to offer the option of salvation to us in a very real and powerful way. God, the one who loves perfectly, who pursues relentlessly to call us back to Him and free us from the pain of our sin. God, the one who is orchestrating all of human history, even when people rebel against Him. He is able to work in such a way that His story shines through and His promises are fulfilled. God, the one who works through even pagan kings and kingdoms, the one who takes one person and turns him into a great nation, the one who preserves that nation of Israel even in their disobedience because He promised to do so, so that that nation and that faith and people survive to this day, 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later. Patience, love, power and hope. We are in a story, God's story. And God is continuing to write that story, and He's faithfully moving things toward a beautiful end that He promises us. So where are you in that story? As Orson Welles said, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. How does this apply to you and me? I want you to take a moment and think about this. What segment, what part of the story of your life are you in right now? Is it a good season? Is it a difficult season? Is it the season you dreamed of or are things totally upset and it's not anything you ever even dreamed of? You're disoriented. You don't even know where the story's going at the moment. Your story doesn't need to stop with tragedy or unknown confusion going on in your life, even if you think it does, even if you think it's going to. Where do you think your story is going? How do you think this is going to end? I want you to pause for a moment and remember God, the one who is able to direct the one big story with such detail and precision over thousands and thousands of years And yet that same God is so very much aware of you and everything about you in your world right now. Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing about it. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So what does that make us do? Fear not. Therefore, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Sit with that truth. Take a moment to picture giving God this season, whatever act your life is in, this part of your life's story. Even though you may not realize it, you are not at the end of the book. Let Him speak to you about how He wants your story to be written. 
Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you are so, so incredible and competent to be able to work across 1,500 plus years and 100 people and, and create this beautiful work that faithfully tells the story of who you are. That honestly, in a very real way, it tells the story of our sin and the consequences that's brought and of who you are in pursuing us to love us and bring our story to an end that is good if we will but follow you. So I pray your spirit would come to each and every one of us specifically, whatever we're facing, whatever season we're in, whatever is going on, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's disorienting, whether, whether we think we have a sense of where you're going, it doesn't matter, Lord. Would you come to us right where we're at today? And would you encourage each and every one of us to trust you, the master story teller, the master story writer, the one who our story is in the palm of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who are online, thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to join in the worship song that we're about to enter into, you can go to facebook.com slash go to quest and it'll be posted there, a pre-recorded version. I hope that it's only a few weeks yet and we'll be able to have the whole thing online. But thank you for joining us online. Everybody else, let's join in worship. I just bless you this week that you would go in the favor of knowing that God's got your story. No matter what's going on, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what's going on in the people around you, God's got your story. And he's going to lead it to a good ending. So God bless. Have a wonderful week. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.